0: So we started our series called Hope Has Come, and this is the first message of two as we just look at the whole point of the nativity story and what really takes place. And so if you want a title for this morning's message, it's Hope Announced, and I'd be grateful if you go ahead, please, and turn to Luke chapter one. This week we're going to look at Luke chapter one, next week we're going to look at Luke chapter two, and then the week after that is Christmas, and I'm just really excited to be able to do this series with you. You see, in so many ways, we're going to be reviewing stories over this week and next, which will no doubt be very familiar to many, if not all of you. And yet, I think so often, sometimes, we, although we're very familiar with the stories, we're not fully engaging our brains when it comes to the stories, because we don't really stop and consider, you know, why did this happen? And what was the big deal about the way it all took place? And I'll confess to you right up front. There's no doubt that within these two chapters there are some outrageous claims. I mean, honestly, when you stop and consider what the Bible says about the nativity story, it is it is outrageous. It is bordering on illegal. There are many things in it you just think, "Are you are you for real? Do you actually really believe that?" And certainly, as a young man myself. I was certainly very challenged by stories like the Nativity. And I was challenged by stories like the Nativity because I was challenged about how authentic the Bible really was or not. I wasn't that convinced about it. So it's Santa, Easter, Tooth Fairy, they all got loaded together. And I thought of the Bible as somewhere in the midst of a lot of that stuff. And so how does it really work? And I just wasn't convinced that this really was authentic. How can it be trusted at all? And so that really started a search in my life at the age of around 19 years old to really discover is the bible really real is it really what god wrote all those years ago or is it just a book of myths a fairy story something else that you know isn't really true but so many people believe in and what i discovered amazingly is that the evidence for the bible is overwhelming there is so much evidence out there about this book that i became absolutely convinced that this is indeed God's Word. The sheer amount of manuscripts we have, there are thousands of manuscripts written on papyri, the Hebrew and the Greek, and all the different writings that went with it. There are thousands of them that you can take a look at and you can see. And Anybody knows about textual criticism, the more you get, the more confidence you can have in the reliability of what is really written there, the way they were copied out. Monks would get the original and then they would have the original and then they would copy, copy it all over and then they would start again and they copied copy it all over. And they believed, they were misinformed, but they believed that if they got a jot or tittle out of place, which is the, the smallest two Hebrew letters, if they got those remotely out of place, God would strike them down and they'd die. So they took a lot of time to make sure this was definitely right because, they, because the way they believed, what they believed, the way the Bible holds together internally Written by different writers in different genres, but the way it holds together over hundreds of thousands of years, things that they couldn't have known about one another, but then there's a storyline that runs all the way through. And so I really came to a place of thinking, this really is God's Word. And the book of Luke really helps us have a great deal of confidence in God's Word. You see, this, what we have here this morning in Luke chapter 1, has been written by a doctor, and it's actually a book of history. Verses one through four, Luke says this He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus, a Roman had been taught a lot of things. He had been taught by his parents and by family that Jesus apparently came as a virgin and then became, came by a virgin mum, and then he lived up and he was sinless and then he died on the cross and he was resurrected. And basically, he, he wasn't sure about it. He wanted to believe it, but he wasn't sure. So he hires a doctor, a medical doctor by the name of young Luke. And he sends Luke off with a load of cash to go and visit people and find Mary and find Elizabeth and find Zechariah and find the disciples and write out for me what they tell you. He takes all the different eyewitness reports and he writes them down. He writes them down right here. That's what you've got in front of you. A doctor's eyewitness account as he interviews different people who were actually there and then he writes out for us what indeed he says. Why? Why? So that Theophilus, and indeed us, can be certain about the things that we've been taught. He wants us to be able to know, guys, I've talked to them. I've talked to Mary. I've talked to the disciples. I've talked to Zechariah. And that's why we can know then that this is absolutely true. And in verses 26 then, through 38, which is where we're going to spend our time today, he talks about the birth of Jesus. Hope announced. Let's read it together. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from us. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word today, written by you through your servant, Dr. Luke, Lord, would our eyes be open to the true historical data that we have in front of us? Would our hearts be open then to you, Lord? Would you blow us away? As we relive and rewalk the paths of your angel Gabriel turning up and announcing the coming of your son. Lord, would we be freshly amazed? Would our eyes be opened? Our hearts be freshened? And would we truly gaze at you? Amen. This story that we've just read is indeed somewhat familiar, isn't it? And many of us have heard it many, many times, and many of us have heard it because we've been to schools where they'll perform an activity. And for many of us, that's both enjoyable and a scarring experience. And so as I read this, and as I've read it this week, I have images in my mind of the angel Gabriel being like a four-year-old, who's about this tall, with blonde hair, and she's got, a, she's got her dad's coat hanger, sort of around her head with tinsel on the top, and hello. Oh, I am Gabriel. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's lovely. And then Mary and Joseph come in, and Mary's like five, and Joseph's four. And they've both got their tea towels on their heads with their dad's belt wrapped around them. And, and, and you sort of relive the nativity story through the eyes of a, a four-year-old, and baby Jesus is always a doll. And, and it kind of scars you a little bit. So you come back to the text. You come back to where they're getting it from. And it can, I think, be a bit, little bit tricky to get beyond the images that we have in our minds of young children performing in front of parents, waving now and again. And yet, as we gather around this word and we allow Luke to speak for himself, I think to gather what is being said here is truly amazing because it's truly profound. See, in verses 26 through 27, Luke sets the scene. He takes time to set the scene for us of where this hope-announced event is going to take place. And it is indeed quite a scene. In verse 26, he says, In the sixth month. In the sixth month of what? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So Mary's relative, Elizabeth, is also pregnant. And in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the back end of what she is about to go through in pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so we're setting the scene. And the scene begins in Nazareth. Now, wherever you see the word Nazareth, you always see after it in Galilee. And that's because this place was a squat of a place. It was tiny. Many believe that it was about the size of a football pitch. It was a tiny, no hope, backwater place where nothing really good come out of. And so whenever you said about Nazareth, you always had to say Nazareth in Galilee. And I understand that because I grew up in a place called Spalding. And so in the United Kingdom, people would say, oh, where are you from? You say, I'm from Spalding. Spalding in Lincolnshire. Oh yes, I know the place. And and, and he always had to say where where the county was, otherwise no one knew where it's come from. And so I know what it is to grow up in a place like that. We had a McDonald's once. You know, it came when I was about 19, and it was front page of the paper for months. We had a swimming pool. You know, whenever if if like an old lady had a gnome nick from a garden, that would be like centre spread of the paper because this would be great news in a place like Spalding. Nothing really happened there. And while I'm here in Australia, I can say what I like against Spalding because they don't have internet connection. So I know. That they won't hear. Anyway, and Nazareth was like that. The way Nazareth was set up, it was just small. There wasn't a lot going on there, not a lot taking place. One of his disciples put his foot in it with Jesus in John 1, when jokingly, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Awkward. But that's what takes place, because the whole point was Nazareth, that not a lot is happening there. It's a small backwater place, and yet this story begins in Nazareth with the almighty god the maker of heaven and earth in action initiating the sending of his angel gabriel see for many of us when it comes to the issue of angels we have images in our mind which are not helpful so right off the bat i want you to get images of angels out of your mind particularly angels like this okay that that is what we often think of as angels I do not want to die and go to heaven and come out as one of those bad boys. That is, that is an overweight toddler with wings. That is appalling. That is, that is horrendous. And so often we have that type of image in our mind when we read the word angel in the Bible. But it is, it is hideous in all varieties. And one of the things that, that is definitely true of this angel is as I look at that, terrified is not a word I think of. I feel sick but not terrified. And that's because angels aren't like that. And the angel Gabriel is nothing like that. You see, the whole premise of in the Bible, when you see angels rocking up to people, they are terrifying. And so when you come across angels in the New Testament, you see one of two reactions happening to people. One reaction is that they just simply hit their face on the floor and worship them thinking they're God. Because they're so taken back and they're so amazed The other reaction is that they are quite literally terrified. Grown men start screaming like small girls. And that is what takes place very often when you see God through an angel interacting with an individual. They either think he's God, the angel, or they're just so scared that the angel always starts with, Fear not. Every time you see angels, they're interrupting people's lives. And their first words most often... I fear not. And that is exactly what this angel says to Mary on this day. He rocks up. God has sent him to the squat of the place called Nazareth to speak to Mary. And Mary's an amazing girl. I'd love to say she's an amazing lady, but she's not really old enough to be a lady. See, Mary was probably about 13 years old. She was a very young teenager. And so the angel Gabriel full of splendor and might, has rocked up to a young girl called Mary. And we know she was about 13 years old because in Jewish tradition, the whole point of the way it worked out in this culture at this time is when you were about 13, you were betrothed to be married. This girl is betrothed to be married to Joseph. And so the tradition had it that as soon as you really hit puberty around 11, 12, 13, you're betrothed to a man and then you got married to him within two years. Well, she is betrothed to Joseph. Joseph is a guy... Obviously, and he loves Mary. He looks forward to marrying And the whole point of betrothal is that it wasn't just an engagement. It was a pre-marriage marriage. I mean, there was a commitment being made. It wasn't just a ring on her finger and then, I oh, will see how we go. This was a guarantee that I will marry you. And so to get out of a betrothal, you had to get divorced. It was that serious. So betrothal was a big deal. And that is why we know that Mary would have been about 13 years old because she was betrothed to Joseph. And we find out twice in verse 27 and once in verse 34 that therefore she is a virgin. She's never had sex with anybody. She's 13 years old. And she's not married. So the scene is set. God, full of grace and wisdom and majesty, sends his holy angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a small shanty town, to speak to a 13 year old girl. And he says to that girl, you're going to be a mum. I know you're only 13, and I know you haven't had sex, but you are going to be a mum. Now, in and of itself, that is amazing, isn't it not? I mean, imagine it. Don't get out of your head, the little four or 5 year olds doing nativity and get into your head. This happened. Imagine an angel turning up to a 13-year-old girl, explaining to her, you are going to be a mum. That in of itself should blow our minds. But that's not all he says. You see, the angel Gabriel, as he turns up, tells her three specific things about her son. Things that truly are mind-blowing. He tells her that that her son will be a special king with a special birth who is coming for not so special people. He takes the time to explain to this 13-year-old girl that your son, who you will have, is not just going to be a usual guy. He's going to be a special king. He's going to come through a special birth. And he's going to have come for not so special people through you. Let's dive in then with this idea of a special birth. Three times in two verses, Lou takes the time to tell us that Mary is a virgin. That is not by accident. It's deliberate. He wants us to know this girl in and of herself cannot have babies because, you know, birds and the bees, it takes time, it takes two, babe, and she has not done anything. He wants us to know, therefore, that this birth would have to be miraculous for it to take place because in and of herself, this is not going to be possible Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, then you will know that these miraculous births do take place in God's Word, not to virgins, but to other people who are either barren or old, and situations take place where basically every time God comes or an angel comes and predicts the birth of a child, the child is born, and when the child is born, that individual always goes on to be a great prophet or a great leader or someone great. You see it over and over in the Bible. So you need to bear that in mind as we discuss this, that this is not completely abnormal, that an angel comes, predicts, and then that person comes about. That's happened before. So take Isaac, for example, all the way back in Genesis 18. Isaac is a patriarch of Israel. He really led the nation of Israel when it was no bigger than a big family. It was probably bigger than the Shavez's, but only by a couple of kids. And it wasn't just bigger. It wasn't just much bigger than the chavezes family. But Isaac was put in by God to lead them. But as you examine in Genesis 18, how that really came about, it's quite amazing. See, God himself rocks up to Abraham and Sarah, and he explains to them that they are going to have a son. And their response is this, they laugh their socks off. And to be honest, I would suggest to you that that would be the, the example of every 100-year-old lady when told that you're going to have a baby. Because Sarah is really getting on in years. This lady is a little bit old, um, and she is 100 years old, and God is telling her, you're going to have a baby. Now, that is hilarious. If we rock up to the local home and say, hey, just thinking, do you want a baby? It's going to be awkward, and it's going to evoke laughter and appall, because it's just crazy. But God rocks up, looks in her eye, you're going to have a child. Guess what? Nine months later, she does. She does have a child, and she calls him Isaac. And Isaac grows up to be a great man of God and a leader of Israel. A few hundred years later, there's Samuel. Samuel's mom is called Hannah. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the author takes great pains to help us see and to bring us into the worldview of Hannah. And it's unusual in the way he writes, because he really wants us to get it. He really wants us to get it that Hannah is desperate for children. She's barren. And so year on year, she has to go through the cultural difficulties, which would be big difficulties in this culture, of not having any children. It was almost a stigma attached to not having children in this culture. And so every year, she'd go to the temple, and she'd cry out to God, Lord, if there's any way that I can have children. Please, Lord, please open my womb. Please allow me the joy of having children. Well, as she talked to Eli, in a gracious and miraculous way, God steps in and God opens her womb. And nine months later, a little boy, Samuel, is born. And he is offered up in dedication to God in the temple. And he goes on to be a prophet, a judge, and a leader to Israel and the people of Israel. We then get at the start of Luke. In Luke chapter one, we, we get introduced to the story of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, another great man who speaks the words of God to a nation, man who, Jesus himself, says this is the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. Well beginning in the Gospel of Luke, we meet John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are old in years as well. They are happy. They are content. They are enjoying one another's relationship. But she also is barren, as we're introduced in verse 7. And yet as the scene is set, the angel Gabriel turns up to Elizabeth and tells her, you're going to have a son. God in grace is going to give you a son, even in your old age. Zechariah can't believe it. There's a load of difficulties going on with that. He just thinks, my gosh, how is this going to happen? She's old, she's barren, we don't have any children. This isn't going to work, but lo and hold. In verse 76, a boy is born, John the Baptist, a boy who would grow up to become the prophet of the Most High, the Almighty's mouthpiece. All those processes will begin with a miraculous birth both predicted and then fulfilled. Now on the face of it, it's not therefore hard to see in the Bible that maybe this is all that's happening here in Luke. It's a predicted birth, and we would therefore know that because it's a predicted birth by an angel or by God, that that child would grow on to be great. And we can read it and assume that that is all that is really happening here. Incredible though that is. And at first glance, it looks like that. Read verse 28. And he came to her, i.e. Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. On the face of it, it doesn't look anything different to what's been seen before. Angel turns up, speaks to woman who can't have child. She has child. That child is great. And yet when you stop and you continue then the reading, you realize, no, this is something far greater than that. For this is a prediction of a child, not who is going to be great, but who quite literally would be God himself. This isn't a prediction just to another child that is predicted and then is going to go on to be a great prophet or leader or prophet of the Most High. This is a child who will be God Himself, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. Point two, He will be a special king. See, all the way through the Old Testament, we're told that there would be a day to come when God Himself would come to earth. All the way through the Old Testament, it's prophesied and predicted and seen. And we'll look at that more next week as we trace the storyline of the Bible and we see it all points to Jesus. And all the way through the Old Testament, that's what you see. Shadows and types, pointers, pointing us to the special king to come. What God is going to be like, what form he is going to be in when he arrives. When God incarnates as a special king. And so throughout the Old Testament, we learn that he's going to come through a certain family. We learn that he's going to lead his people perfectly. We learn that he's going to be a king, and yet he's going to be unlike any king that's gone before. We learn that he's going to care for people in a way that no king ever has before. And we learn that this king is going to be the rightful heir to King David's throne. See, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, There is something that takes place. God speaks to David 2,000 years before Jesus is even born. So if we are 2,000 years after Jesus is born, 2,000 years before Jesus is born, God says to David this. He says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom... He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You know, here in Luke chapter 1, in this text that we're reading today, all of those promises collide. And all of those promises collide through an announcement from Gabriel to Mary. That Mary, you're not just going to have a son, You're not just going to have a prophet of the Most High. No, this is something far greater. Read verse 32. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary You're not just going to have a prophet of the Most High. You're going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. Mary, you are going to give birth to a special king who will be the rightful heir of King David's throne. The one that you have all been waiting for is going to come through you. Quite literally, Mary, you're going to give birth to God. How do you take that in when you're 13? How do you take that in when you're 83? I mean, what do you do with that? As Mary stands before the angel Gabriel, 13 years old in a shanty town in Nazareth, getting on with the day, Gabriel, an angel who would be terrifying in sight, stands before her and says, don't be afraid, I've got something to tell you. You're going to give birth to God in the flesh. That's staggering, isn't it? How on on earth do you cope with that information? What do you do with that? Certainly if she came to me afterwards as her pastor, I'd say, have you been drinking something? I mean, what has been going on? What has taken place? But what had taken place was absolutely right and absolutely accurate. This must have been mind-boggling for Mary as she stood before the angel Gabriel And yet, to be honest, I think it should be mind-boggling for us as well. Because as you play forward what has taken place, what we are learning about here is simply incredible. Because as we let this text unfold, and as we lead it into Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4, what you realize is right here, God, it is being announced by Abriel that God, the almighty son of God, is going to become flesh. The one who spins the galaxies is going to take on bone and muscle and tissue and skin and walk the earth just like us. Just let that sink in a moment. The one who breathed out the sun is going to know what it is like in the flesh to sit outside in the middle of a hot sunny day, needing a drink because he's thirsty because it's so hot. The one who spins the galaxies is going to know what it is then like to lie on a hill with his disciples getting cold as he looks at the stars and looks at that which he brought out and sustains so that not one is missing. The one who by his own word breathed forward the sand (laughs) and could number every grain of sand on every seashore and every desert, would be the same one that in the heat of the day would stop to brush sand off his own feet as he took on flesh. The maker of heaven and earth would know what it is like to be a helpless baby. He would know what it would be like to be a vulnerable child. He would know what it is like to walk through the teenage years with all the pressures and challenges. And he would know what it is like to be an adult. And he would know it because the maker of heaven and earth took on flesh and became one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. Now that's incredible, isn't it? 2,000 years ago, Gabriel stands to Mary and says, you're the one. You are going to be the mother of the Most High God. And she does become the mother of the Most High God, as we'll see you next week. Jesus is indeed born of the flesh, and he becomes a human just like us. You know, through this reality, we now have a hope of salvation, do we not? Through the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a way genuinely and wholeheartedly of coming to know God as our Savior, as our Redeemer and our Lord. If He did not put on flesh, the story is over. But because He became flesh for us and then died and rose again, we can now have life and life in abundance through putting our faith in Him and repenting of our sin. But that's not all. Because in grace He was willing to put on flesh, Here's what I want you to understand. Because he knows what it is to be human, for you now as Christians, you have one you can go to, even in the difficult circumstances. And he completely and utterly understands. And he understands not because he's some far off God pointing the finger saying, oh yeah, that must be awful, try this, try that. He's a God that took on flesh and says, yeah, I know how that feels. Because I'm human like you. I took on flesh just like yours. See, when you examine the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, what you see is that this God-man was indeed man. He was fully God and fully man. And in Luke, we see his manhood several times. He's born into the poverty of Mary's house. They didn't have a lot of money. They never had a lot of money. It's believed that Joseph died not long after Jesus was born, and so he ended up really bringing himself up in different years as the later years went on. They were poverty-stricken. And so Jesus knew what it was to go without. He was thirsty. He knew what it was to experience real hunger and real tiredness and exhaustion at the end of a long day. Relationally, he knew what it was to be bereaved. He knew what it was to lose a close one. He knew what it was to be betrayed, and he knew what that felt like as a human, when somebody lets you down so heroically and so hugely. And in his adulthood, he knew what it was like to face death. See, quite literally, in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, we have a God who completely understands our circumstances, and that changes everything. See, maybe you're here and you've been praying for some time over a bereavement. Maybe you've lost somebody close to you. And to be honest with you, you, you come to church and you put your face on because it's, it's church. But then after church and every evening, you're upset. You're weeping because you've lost somebody close to you. Either a spouse or a loved one or a friend. And it's almost unbearable as you think what has taken place. Folks, 2,000 years ago, God came in the flesh and he knows what it is like then to stand at the graveside of a close friend and weep and cry. And so in your bereavement, you have a God who can go to, full of grace, who knows exactly what you are going through in your bereavement because he's been through it too. Maybe you're going through a situation where you've been betrayed Something's happened in work or something's happened in your life or something you're going through and you just feel completely and utterly betrayed and you can wonder, Lord, what am I going to do? How do I cope with this? Well, we have a God in heaven that put on flesh and came after us and then who witnessed his own betrayal for just a few pieces of silver at the hand of a man that he had discipled and trained for the last three years. In your betrayal, you have a God who knows exactly what you're going through and who can empathize with you because He, too, became flesh. And He, too, was betrayed. Maybe you're going through a health scare, something that is happening in your life, a serious health challenge, and the fruit of that is just anguish and worry. Am I going to die? What is going to happen? If I don't die, just how, long, how how debilitating is this going to be over the years of my life? And it can produce, seriously, great anguish in our hearts and our lives. I know it can. Well, the God in heaven took on flesh and the night on which he was betrayed, he cried out to God in the garden of Eden, sweating blood, such was his anguish, saying, Lord, if there is any other way, please let it be. Your God in heaven knows what it is to walk through situations that cause great anguish. And He will help you in your anguish because He knows how it feels. And He now responds and sits at the right hand of the Father. We're giving His access to the Father who says that in grace and mercy He'll be there for you. One who knows bereavement, one who knows anguish, one who knows tiredness, one who knows need. Because He took on flesh and He came after us, even in the most trying of circumstances. We have a God who understands, and he understands because he became man. You know, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're not a Christian, and maybe therefore you are like me, like you used to be, and you'd come out to Christmas and come out to Christmas events because that's what you should kind of do, but you can't see what all the fuss is about. I mean, what is all the fuss about? I mean, every year we rock up, we sing a few carols over this guy who was apparently born. Well, whoopy do. That that's so encouraging, so so nice. And I'd agree with you. If Jesus was only a man, this is pointless. But the Bible doesn't claim he was only a man. And I don't believe he was only a man. The Bible claims that he was God. That God came in the flesh, that he came and then at the age of 33 died and rose again so that anyone who would put their faith in him would have life and life in abundance. If we're celebrating a man, we may as well pack our bags, enjoy a bit of food, and then not come back again because this is pointless. But if we're celebrating God who came after us on a rescue mission, I want to celebrate that every day of my life. I don't want to just celebrate that at Christmas. I want to live in the good of that every single day of my life existence. See, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came after a not-so-special people. And that's our third point. He was born a special birth, as a special king, for a not-so-special people. See, so much about the arrival of God in the flesh, I just think is a bit perplexing, to be honest, and a bit confusing. I mean, really, if you were God... Why go to Nazareth? Why not go to Rome? I want to go to Jerusalem. Why go to a thirteen year old girl who is not even married that then as you grow up with her as your mother, you have to listen to the crowd at different points abusing her mum? Because who's going to believe her that Joseph hadn't already slept with her? Why bother with that? Why not go to a married couple who live in a palace so you can be the son of a queen? or a princess so that you can live your life with splendor and that you can launch as a platform, being God, to tell everybody just to let you know, I am God. Why go to a situation which is so poor when you are the God who owns everything? Why do what he did? Why choose to be born quietly into a borrowed stable? Why choose to be born into a small backwater in Nazareth? Why choose to be born to a poor and poverty-stricken mum? Well, here's why. Because he came for the most unlikely of people. He was born through the most unlikely of events because he came through the most unlikely of people. As you examine the Gospel of Luke... You find Jesus Christ, God incarnate, not primarily spending time with the successful. You don't find him downtown, Sydney CBD, living it up with different people. You don't see him do that. You see him spending time with the failures, the down and outs, the people that nobody cares about, the people that nobody is interested in. You don't see Jesus spending time and hanging out with the religious The people that are walking around with their big Bibles under their hands and just letting you know how good they are, and they're so good they happen to be floating two inches off the ground. He's not interested in that. He's interested in sinners. People that know they're not good enough. That know that in and of themselves, they don't deserve to be with God in any shape or form. Jesus came to hang with those people. The outcasts. Jesus didn't come and didn't hang out with people who have got it all together. He hang out with people, as you examine the scriptures, with people that have made shipwrecks of their life, that have blown it, that have screwed up. To be fully honest, people like me. See, in Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 5, he says it straight out. He says, I have not come for the righteous. I've not come effectively for all those that think they've got it together. I've not come for people that don't need me and they think that in and of themselves they can just perform before God and get in. That's not who I've come for. He says, I've come for the sinners, the outcasts, the failures, people that truly, by the grace of God, need a Saviour. Folks, if you are coming along this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour, and maybe you've even on the way here in your car been driving in and just considering and thinking, man, I just don't fit with a religious crowd. Well, that makes at least two of us, because I don't either. I'm not a big fan of religion, but I'm a big fan of Jesus Christ, because he came for people that would be driving in this morning thinking, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough to go to heaven. I'm not good enough to have a relationship with God. Bingo. He came for you then. He came for people that would know they're not good enough. He came for people that know, I've screwed up my life. He came for outcasts and failures. And he came, he said, to give you life and life in abundance. Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary and at the age of 33 died on a cross. Why? Why? as the punishment for the sin of all those who had put their faith in Him as their Lord and Savior. See, contrary to rumor, you haven't just evolved from some amoeba, okay? It's not just like it's just happened from this amoeba and just we've managed to zap it with batteries, something freaky's happened, and we managed to grow from an amoeba. People, give me a break. I mean, that is just an absolute joke. There's just no way it's happened. I'll tell you what might have happened is God actually made us just like He said He had. Simple. The challenge is... God made us, but He made us to worship Him. He made us to find our joy in Him, our contentment in Him. He made us to find our worship in Him. But me and everybody else has rejected that. We decided, well, stuff for you. I'm just going to be interested in the creation. I'm going to buy my speedboat. I'm going to hang out down the bay and I'm going to live my life. That's what I did. Just we didn't have a nice bay. We had rain. But Jesus came so that you could have life and life in abundance. By rejecting your own way of life, your own living for self. And instead realising, I need a saviour. I want to have a relationship with God. I want to have the joy in God that I was made for. I want to have the relationship with God that I was made for. I want to know that when my my eyes close in death, heaven is going to be my home. How do I get it? Only one way. By believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and saviour. Romans 9 verse 10 Paul simply says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. I don't believe in Jesus. Well, thanks for coming. You're not saved. It takes a personal response to say, you know what? I believe Jesus is the special king that Gabriel announced. I believe Jesus is the true King. I believe He is my King, and I put my faith in Him then as my King. And I confess with my mouth that He is my King. And I believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead, that He was not only born, but He died and He rose again so that I may have life and life in abundance. When you do those things, salvation is your story, it's my story. And so I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, then do those things. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again and you will be saved. It will be real for you and you will have one mother of a Christmas as you realize that you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're adopted, heaven is your home, you have a relationship with God that you never had before and life is simply amazing. True. But you've got to walk through that step first. Do you believe? If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But get on your knees and say, Lord, I take you. I take you as my Lord and Savior. And then let somebody know. Spread the rumor so we can pray with you. But salvation will be yours. If though you're here today and you are a Christian, which is many to most of you, then how do you apply this? Well, here's how, simple. Merry Christmas. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was announced through the angel Gabriel to Mary. And the angel Gabriel announced to her that Jesus Christ, her son, would be born through a special birth. He would be a special king, and he would come for a not-so-special people. We're those not-so-special people. So as you gather around at Christmas, be amazed that that special king came for you and me, a not-so-special people. Hope has indeed come, and so would all glory go to him. Let's pray. Lord, it is a pure thrill to review a story that isn't actually about five and six-year-olds acting it out, but it is a story written in history, a story of truth. Lord, thank you for coming after us. Thank you for putting on flesh. Thank you for pursuing us, for this is all your initiative, even at the start of this text. We are introduced to the whole Christmas story through the words that you sent the angel. This is all your initiative. And so, Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for coming after us. And Lord, would we regularly over this Christmas season return to give you thanks. For you are worthy, Lord. Amen.